Frage der Vielgewinnung der inneren Kraft und Gesundheit des deutschen Volkes. I climbed four flights of stairs. That's two flights for each floor. To a woman last apartment. And she had a grate over her door that I could get the flowers through, but it's a safety gate. I wasn't allowed to touch her. She wasn't allowed to touch me. I had my mask on. She answered the door. She took the flowers. And then this hand came through the door, and she reached out and just touched my arm. And I heard this sigh. <sighs> she needed contact. Hi, it's time for Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. It's a pleasure, friend, to have you stop by on today's show. I'm really looking forward to having Susan Hagee back in the studio. Susan has traveled from the land of Israel. We became friends quite a few years ago. Yeah. How long has it been now, Susan? Actually, I was trying to think of that the other day. I don't know what year that was. <laughs> I have to go back in the records. I've got the information. You know, it's in the archives. <laughs> we know that you were here, shared about the ministry of Abundant Hope International. This organization has a passion to help Holocaust survivors, and that's the passion that God put on your heart. Out of nowhere, I mean, here you are in Texas, living your life, managing a cinema movie theater. And Actually, 51 screens. 51. Well, everything in yeah. Texas is big, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was in the corporate end, and I had 51 screens I was responsible for, booking the movies. I was the, the suit, you know, that I always wanted to be. You had that big position. I did. Prestige. Yep. Power. Yep. Was the money there, too? Uh, maybe a little less than I wanted, but yeah, it wasn't bad. You, you had all the milk bad. duds and popcorn you could have, right? Yes, actually, and I was a, a fan of popcorn. I, it pretty well cured me. <laughs> Over addiction to popcorn. Wow. But God did something in your life. We shared this the last time we were together. You had an opportunity to go to Israel. You'd never been before. No. <laughs> you had no desire to go, really, did you? No, I had no I had no desire, and I'm not sure I would call it up. Well, I guess it was an opportunity. I was miserable in my job, and I had asked my Bible study group to pray that I would have a clear answer of what God wanted me to do. Even though I was doing everything I wanted, I was crying all the time. So they prayed on a Wednesday night, and Thursday morning I got fired. Now that I had my clear answer... I was offered a free trip to Israel for a vacation to think about what I wanted to do next. And I never wanted to go to Israel. I had no interest. But a free vacation, I could handle that. Yeah. So I went. Anytime you can say free to especially an international trip, yeah. so many people would love the opportunity to travel to Israel. I never in my wildest imagination thought I'd ever go to Israel one time. And as you know, in 2018, I went two different times with the Bot Radio Network on a travel tour to Israel. The first time, as you know, Susan, when you go to Israel, it's like drinking from a fire hose. It's overwhelming. It's incredible. There's too much to see and hear and yeah, learn. You can't. Yeah, you, can, you have to have multiple trips. And that's why I'm so thankful the same year. Just a few months later, I went back a second trip, had the opportunity to travel to Israel, taste the food. I, the food is what I miss most in comparison. <laughs> it's so fresh. You know, there's all this processed stuff we eat here in America. Yes. And it seems like the food is so, oh my goodness, so delicious, so fresh. And they grow everything in Israel. They do. You know, Israel produces more bananas than any other country in the world. Yeah, we drove by those banana stalks. <laughs> And they're just, they're everywhere. And they, yeah. and the way they, too, they cover the stalks with plastic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they produce more blue bags than anybody else. 
Yeah. And they export more of that through all over the they, Middle East. They export not only bananas, they have overtaken Holland in exporting the most flower seeds and seedlings. And they also export more medicine than anybody else because they are the forerunner in the medical field and what they make and everything. Last time we got together, we talked about how Abundant Hope International was serving Holocaust survivors in 25 cities in Israel. Is that the same or has that changed? We are not in as many cities. Um, What has happened is my goal was to be able to help the survivors who had the least help and the cities who that no one paid any attention to. So some of these cities have now had organizations that have taken over, and so they didn't really need me. I backed off of those, but the ones that still have a need, that's where we are. So we're in fewer cities, and of course it's fewer survivors because they're, they're dying. And the survivors that we have on our list, the people that we help, Right now, this year, we're losing them one every week. Wow. I remember a statistic we shared last time, too. One Holocaust survivor every 30 minutes passes. Is that still true? That's still approximately correct. Uh, At least it was last year. But I think this year it has increased. What about the COVID pandemic in Israel? I know it's been locked down there. Tourism has halted. I have a friend that I met when I was there in Bethlehem. Their livelihood is based on tourism. Yes. I have another friend I met who, uh, Jacob's Pizza, right there in the old city of Jerusalem. He has a pizza place, and I think he had to close up because no tourists. Yes, many, many places have closed. Tourism is still going on, but it's a whole lot less than it was. There are tour groups there. Um, You're allowed to go and tour if you've been vaccinated and you come in. They were in the beginning of letting them in putting monitor bracelets on them and tracking them everywhere they went in Israel in case somebody got sick and they knew who they talked to and things like that. But right now, I don't know how much tourism is going on because they're closing down again. They've started the Green Pass again where you have to be vaccinated to go to a sport event or the theater or anything like that. They just fenced off the beach right in front of my house and put the police there. I mean, this is kind of the funny part of it. During the week, vaccinated and unvaccinated can go to the beach. But on Shabbat, you have to be vaccinated. So I haven't quite figured out how that balances. But so even the beach, you can't go to there unless you're vaccinated. And I just saw this morning that they are uh, making it mandatory that teachers, doctors, nurses must be vaccinated or they have to have a test every 72 hours. Every 72 hours. Because the test is only accepted within 72 hours. They would have to do another test. Right. Now, I think, too, hasn't Israel developed its own vaccine? Um, No. They're using the Pfizer vaccine. They were working on their own, but they are using the Pfizer. Okay. I haven't heard anything more on the one that they were working on. I don't don't know what the status is, whether they stopped. I, I really don't know what that is. Susan, as we open up the show and we talk about the Holocaust, the Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust was unprecedented genocide, total and systematic, perpetrated by Nazi Germany and its collaborators with the aim of annihilating the Jewish people. Yes. The primary motivation was the Nazi anti-Semitic racist ideology. Hitler hated them. Hitler started it. 
he surrounded himself with people who are more than willing to get rid of them. But he capitalized on the anti-Semitism that were in other countries, beginning with Poland. When they came into Poland, Poland already had a problem of anti-Semitism. The Jewish people had moved into Poland, I think it was the 1300s. So they'd been there all this time. However, the Polish government had collapsed. Their bank collapsed. And they had already made it before this that it was a separate community. Uh, the Jews were in one community. The Polish people were in separate. So they, the Jews had their own bank. They had their own community. They had their own tailors, their own everything. So when the banking system in Poland collapsed, the Jewish banks came in and took over to booster them. Not to take over over. But they put their own money in, they put their own expertise in, and brought it back again. And they became jealous, and the anti-Semitism grew because the Jews were able to do this. And so the Nazi army, when they came in, capitalized on the anti-Semitism. When they came into Poland, they took half, and Russia came in and took the other half. So it was divided in half. But that was a line that constantly moved. So sometimes the Germans had more, sometimes the Russians had more. And when they were fighting like that, the Polish people, their loyalty was to whoever was in charge. So when the Nazis came in, they persecuted the Jews and turned them in. When the Russians came in, they helped the Jews. So, okay, they're helping their neighbor today, now they're turning them in. And it was very difficult mm. And that's the one country, it's the only country that lost 90% of the Jews in the war. And the 10% that were left of those ones that returned to Poland, they were then being murdered oh. after the war. So when the Nazis saw this, easy, let's yes. keep going. And that was the example for them. Nina Katz was a Holocaust survivor who used to live just right down the street here from our studio by the Jewish Community Center. There was a housing there. She's since passed, but I had a chance to have her in the studio, and Good. a friend of mine wrote a biography on her life. She told the horrifying story. It was a concentration camp in Poland that she was taken to. Her family was divided. Her grandfather, parents were in one line, and somehow she was moved to the line to a train to Poland while her family went to Auschwitz. Seeing the the mark, the number on her wrist, or her, on her arm, rather. Yes. But, you know... I didn't sense any bitterness when she shared her story. She talked about when the Russians came in and liberated that camp. The remaining Jews were brought outside to a courtyard, and the guards that had, who had been brutally vicious, just horrible, were brought out and lined up, and a pistol was laid there. And the Russian soldiers gave the Jews permission to go ahead and shoot the guards, the German guards there, and Nina said no one picked up the pistol. I would say the majority of the Holocaust survivors are not bitter. There are some, but the majority of them are not bitter. And especially today, they say that, well, the German people are not the Nazis. It's not the same. But, you know, if you compare what you were just talking about in Auschwitz with Dachau. Dachau, when it was liberated by the U.S. Army, the prisoners turned on the guards and ripped them to shreds and beat them to death. And the soldiers didn't do anything. They let them do it. Wow. Yad Vashem is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem. 
And I know there is a Holocaust Museum in New York City. Many have traveled there, but I got to go in my trip to Yad Vashem. I have a pine cone. You know, there's these beautiful pine trees that are growing on the property there. I picked up a pine cone just to remember that time. Uh, It's hard to describe when when you walk in. It's very dark. It's very disturbing. As you know, as you walk into this museum, as you make your way through each exhibit and area, it gets more narrow and smaller till you get to the end. It's actually the same size. The way they designed it, it makes it feel, yeah, it, it makes it feel like. It makes like, it feel like it's getting. And I know, love the way they made it. They have the light coming down from the skylight, but that you're going back and forth across. Yes. And that's exactly how the Holocaust was. It was back and forth and back and forth. And so it's well done. It's well done. And the information is so good. Even more disturbing to me was the children's museum. I am with you. Which is is not as elaborate in the sense of detail. Very simple. It's very simple. And that's what really rips your heart out. When you walk in, you start hearing the names of the children, over a million, one by one names read, and you see these pictures. I mean, I... And the candle. It's one candle that's reflected all those times. Because in that center, it's it looks like thousands of candles, but it's one candle with a reflective single memorial candle. Wow. Incredible. I think we cannot forget the atrocities of the Holocaust. As we look at future generations, even racial tensions in our country here, we need to neutralize with pictures of this to see what is the human heart capable of doing to one another. Yes. Yes. You know, the survivors tell us, please... Don't forget us. Remember us and tell others so they remember us, too. Susan, what is the biggest misinformation that most people have about survivors of the Holocaust? One, that they didn't fight back, that they just walked in and let everybody do what they wanted. And that's not true. You start talking to them, you find out how much fighting went on and how much resistance. There was a lot of resistance and a lot of behind-the-scenes thing and guerrilla warfare. And they fought. They were not cheap. They were not just walking in. The only times they did is when they were um, misled. They were lied to as to what was coming. And they wanted to believe it. The other thing is that people don't know, even I am still finding out, there are things that happened in the Holocaust that are not in the history books. They are not anywhere. And the only way you find them out or as if you sit and talk to a survivor. But isn't that true for a lot of Israel's history? Masada, for example, history says that the remaining Jews at Masada committed suicide. That's not true. They fought. They fought. They fought. The, the last of them, the very tiny remnant. Fought to the very last. Yes, but even then some of them did not. And some of them were taken into slavery. Yes. It wasn't complete. Yeah, I, so I think sometimes history in the printed page <laughs> doesn't get told. The, no, and, it doesn't. There's archaeological evidence that proves otherwise. Yes. Uh, Susan, going back to the COVID for just for one second, uh, what adjustments has Abundant Hope International had to make because of the pandemic? Okay, when they shut down, um, first of all, we have Holocaust survivors who are in uh, what's called a beta vote or a nursing home. You also have ones that are in hostels. So they shut down the hostels that the survivors could not go out. Family could not come in. We could not come in. And they placed a guard there. So we could not see them. We could call them, which we began doing phone calls. So we stayed in touch by phone. But we deliver birthday flowers 
Well, in the beginning of the COVID, they decided that the birthday flowers might have COVID on them. So we weren't even allowed to take flowers to them. No flowers. (laughs) So for about four months, no flowers. But the Army was delivering boxes of food to the elderly and to the survivors. So we discovered through phone calls some were not receiving boxes. So we called up the Army and told them. And when they found out that we knew people and they didn't, and sometimes they didn't have somebody to deliver, they were calling us up, okay, can you deliver this, can you deliver that? So I got permission for us to go out and go to the survivors. We weren't allowed to go in their homes. We weren't allowed to touch them. We had to have a mask on. We could take the box and put it at the door. Uh, some of the survivors came out and took it no matter what. You know, they, they wanted contact. But the other thing that we could do, which we figured out very easy, we'd call them up, go to your window. And they go to the window and we're down in the street waving at them, you know, hi, hi. And they're like, hi, you know. So we had to be very um, – We had to find ways that we could still maintain contact. But it was interesting that they were healthy. And it wasn't because they were kept away from everyone. They had constantly on the news, Holocaust survivors got COVID, went into the hospital. Here they are coming out, waving at you, 96 years old, 104 years old, and they lived through it. They were fine. So they were fantastic people about this. And the Holocaust survivors are the oldest people in the world now, and they're living longer than everybody else. And they weren't afraid of the COVID. They were not afraid. They've been through a whole lot more than COVID conditions. Uh, Take us inside, Susan, the homes where survivors live. What are we typically going to find? We're going to go pre-pandemic here, but what are we typically going to find when we visit a survivor's home? Well, of course, the large large majority of them – are of Russian descent, Russian-speaking. So they're from many different countries, but many of them, not all of them. But one of the things, the first things that you notice is they have a big Oriental-style rug on the wall. So there's always a rug on the wall. You have a rug on the floor, too, but you have a rug on the wall. And um, they always have pretty much the same kind of furniture. It's just a Russian-style furniture. So... One apartment to the next to the next looks pretty much the same. Many of them are still active. Now, of course, as they age, more of them have caretakers than they did before. So there's usually a caretaker who answers the door. Unless you have people like Golda. Golda, when you go in her apartment, she answers the door. She pulls you inside. She runs around and gives you a drink, and she's yuck, 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 and she's 98 years old. (laughs) She is the most active lady, but she will take you in and then take you to one extra bedroom in her home, which has pictures of all of her family up on the wall and a bed that's made. And that room is waiting just in case one of her relatives lived and didn't find her yet, and they might find her. She's waiting for them at 98. Most of her family was killed in the camps and in the ghettos, But some disappeared, and she doesn't know where they are. What happened to them? She's still waiting. She's still waiting. Yes. Oh, my. And that is what you hear from them is, I don't know where my aunt is. I don't know whatever happened to my son. I don't know. And so there is that sense of waiting when you go in there. There's also, you can feel in there. It's an actual, tangible feeling of loneliness. And that's that's what gets me. 
when I go in there and I can sense the loneliness that they have. During the COVID, when I was allowed to give flowers out again, I climbed four flights of stairs, that's two flights for each floor, to a woman last apartment. And she had a grate over her door that I could get the flowers through, but it's a safety gate. I wasn't allowed to touch her. She wasn't allowed to touch me. I had my mask on. She answered the door. She took the flowers. And then this hand came through the door, and she reached out and just touched my arm. And I heard this sigh. (sighs) She needed contact. The loneliness was bad enough before. The COVID has separated them so much, they are desperate for touch. Wow. And if we go into their apartment, the first thing they say is, well, you take off that mask. (laughs) So they want to see. Yeah. I want to see your face. I want to see you smile. Yes. And so we sit far across the room for them, and we take the mask off, and then they smile. (laughs) So it is still the touch. It is still the compassion. It is still the friendship. Is still the family and letting them know that they're loved. Flowers, touches of care, food. But isn't music, too, you told us last time, an important part? It is, but we haven't been able to do it since the COVID. Nobody is doing concerts. Nobody is doing... We did games for them. We did different things. We cannot get any gathering together. We're not allowed. So that's all restricted by the government. Yes, yes. And, of course, you know, when... Whenever one of them dies, it's very difficult. We have comfort bears that we give out. And in fact, I'm just collecting bears again. They're soft bears, any soft bears. Uh, Not purple ones or bright pink ones, but just the ones that look like a bear. And I have all these bears. And when a spouse dies, let's say a woman loses her husband, I go in and I look for a bear that looks like him. You would be amazed how bears actually can look like people. (laughs) And I'll give you an example of one. Um, Miriam had lost her husband. His name was Joseph. And I went through and I pulled one out and I thought, boy, that looks like Joseph. I hope it's not my imagination. I took it to her and we explain. We hold the bear and we stroke it and we say, we've brought you a bear that when you miss your husband, then here's the bear. You can hug him instead. And they grab it and they bury their face in it. Well, she did just that. Then she held it back and she said, you know, I think it looks like my Joseph. (laughs) So she recognized it. She put it on the table and her caretaker, who had also taken care of her husband, came in. She told him what it was for. He grabbed it and he hugged that bear and he sat it down. He said, it looks just like Joseph. (laughs) And these these make a difference. It's small touches, whether it's flowers or bear, the quilts that we give. We give handmade quilts to them. Why? It's a heritage quilt, heirloom quilt, because they lost all their heirlooms in the war. So we give them to start over a new heirloom to wow. pass on to their family. It's these small touches that make a difference. And people writing to them, our adoption program. And they get so excited when they get a letter, which we translate into their language. And then when that person comes to see them, they come on a visit, and they come to see their survivor. And they just grab each other and hug each other. And we have one woman that she had lost her daughter in the war. She saw her murdered. And she grabbed her adopting, the one that wrote to her on a regular basis. She put her hands up and said, Baruch Hashem. 
thank you for giving me back a daughter. She considered that person her daughter again. We're replacing family. We're introducing them to the Lord. Wow. Susan, this is beautiful. In the name of Jesus, I know that is the motivation behind what you do and the love for these people who have suffered so much. Yes. Uh, And we've got to take time to uh, touch them. It's such a wonderful ministry. Again, the Ministry of Abundant Hope International. I'll tell you what, we're going to have to wrap this show up. Our time is about gone. If you can hang around, we need to do a second show, if you can. Sure. And we'll con- not going anywhere. continue the conversation. I think it's important, too, we remind our listeners that you have a book, Why Is Great Grandma So Sad, that you wrote. Yes. Here's the book in hand right now. This book is available. How can listeners get a copy of the book and give me a 30-second introduction to the book? In the back of the book are several Holocaust survivors who have different stories. I combined them into a historical novel telling about a little girl who is now the great-grandma and her experience through the war. It's written without trauma so that children as young as 7 or as old as 97 can read it. And it takes about 30 minutes to read, and there are 45 illustrations inside. I highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, there are a number of school classes that are using it. And so how can we get copies? You can get it either on our website, you can contact us right there on the donation page or on, or on the contact page or on Amazon. And, and give us the website. ahi-il.org. ahi-il.org. Yes. And there's other information on the website about the ministry. I know right now there's been a lockdown. There's not travel going on for volunteers to come and participate. Well, they they can if they want to quarantine. Yes. They don't mind quarantining. Okay. Um, so they can do that. And all proceeds of this book, 100% goes to the survivors. That's great. Susan Hagee, thank you so much, Sister, for what you're doing for Christ's kingdom among the Holocaust survivors in Israel, really around the world, as uh, Abundant Hope International touches lives. We're going to have to pick it up next time and talk more, okay? Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Hope you'll join us next time as we get back together with Susan Hagee, again with Abundant Hope International. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Mid-South Viewpoint is locally produced in the Bot Radio Network Memphis Studios, airing Tuesday through Thursday at 3 p.m. The show is available at BotRadioNetwork.com or on the Bot Radio mobile app for iPhone and Android users, as well as iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast. If you have an idea for an upcoming show, email btyler at BotRadioNetwork.com.